You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 75 of the GDPR Weekly Show. We've listened to your requests and so we have decided to drop the normal start of the show of being uh, a shout out to our new listeners and just to say a big welcome to all of our listeners and by doing this we can squeeze in an extra article into each episode which I think is what most of you have been asking for. As always if you have any feedback on the show or any suggestions you have for improvements you'd like to see to the show then please do send us an email to podcast at insurety.co.uk that's e-n-s-u-r-e-t-y.co.uk and we do read all of the feedback um, or emails that you send in. Unfortunately, we don't have time to reply to each one individually, but please do send them in. It's great to have your feedback. And in just a few moments, I'll be telling you what's coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. So, coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have news of a large data breach at Microsoft with approximately 250 million records exposed. We then have an investigation into why a data breach firm had been given access to young people's data by the Department of Education. We then look at the new age-appropriate design code issued by the ICO this week, which would interest to anyone who deals with data from children, whether that's from a website, an app, or even a device via the Internet of Things. We then have a statement given at the Davos Summit by Google's CEO who backed GDPR and said that privacy should not be considered a luxury. We then have news of a data breach affecting employee data for office services company Regis via Trello when they exposed some employee data. We then have news that Twitter has prohibited Grindr from advertising on the Twitter platform after multiple GDPR breaches by Grindr. We then have news of a new mobile app called Mine, which helps users protect their data. And finally this week, we have an article about the Met Police citing GDPR concerns to stop monitoring of footage from body-worn cameras. So there was a mixed bag of articles for you this week, all connected with GDPR though, and we hope you find the show interesting and entertaining. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We begin this week with news from Microsoft of a really big data breach of potentially some 250 million records. In a blog article produced by Microsoft, entitled Access Misconfiguration for Customer Support Databases, Microsoft admits that between the 5th of December 2019 and the 31st of December 2019, a database used for support case analytics was effectively visible from the cloud to the whole outside world. Microsoft have not yet given any details for how big the database was, however, consumer website Comparitech, which says it discovered the unsecured data online, claims it was in the order of 250 million records, containing logs of conversations between Microsoft support agents and customers from all over the world, spanning a 14-year period from 2005 to December 2019. According to Comparatech, the same data was accessible 
on five different Elasticsearch servers. The company informed Microsoft and Microsoft quickly secured the data. Microsoft's official statement states that the vast majority of records were cleared of personal information, meaning it used automated tools to look for and remove private data. However, it acknowledged that some private data that was supposed to be redacted had been missed and remained visible in the exposed information. To date, Microsoft have not said what type of personal information has been involved or which data fields ended up unanonymized. It did, however, give one example of data that would have been left behind. Email addresses with spaces added by mistake were not recognized as personal data and therefore escaped anonymization. So if your email address was recorded as name at example.com, your data would have been converted into harmless form, whereas name with a space and then at example.com, an easy mistake for someone to make, would have been left alone. Microsoft has promised to notify anyone whose data was inadvertently exposed in this way, but didn't say what percentage of records it felt were affected. As always, with this sort of data breach where email addresses are involved, our advice would always be to be careful of phishing attempts by other third parties. So if you receive an email which purports to be from Microsoft, but you suspect isn't, then best thing to do is to double check before you send any response to that email. If we receive any update on this from Microsoft, then we will of course bring it to you in the future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Teachers' unions here in the UK are demanding an investigation after it emerged that the Department of Education had given access to children's data to a firm which had previously been subject to a data breach. The firm, which offers screening checks, was given access to the Learning Records Service database. The Learning Records Service database contains the names, ages and addresses of 28 million young people aged 14 and over in schools and colleges across the United Kingdom. The Education and Skills Funding Agency said it had launched an investigation this week after being tipped off by the Sunday Times that the LRS had been accessed by data intelligence firm GB Group, whose clients include 32 Red and Betfair, among other gambling companies. GB Group is understood to have used the Learning Records Service database for age and identity verification services for its clients. However, it is claimed that one gambling firm had boosted the numbers of young people passing its identity checks by 15% by using the database. According to the Department of Education, the education training provider, which wrongly provided access to the service, was Trustopia. But an investigation by sister paper Further Education Week has found that not only is the firm not registered as a provider, its co-founder, Ronan Smith, was subject to a government investigation in 2017. His training company later went bust, leaving learners in thousands of pounds of debt. For the NEU, Kevin Courtney, Joint General Secretary, said there needs to be an urgent investigation looking at the criteria that the Department of Education uses to grant access to the data and the identities of the organisation which already have access. He went on to say, given the hugely sensitive nature of this data, it is also vital that there are rigorous checks on any organisations which are granted access. Privacy rules state that a young person's personal information should only be accessed through the system by organisations and, quotes, 
specifically linked to their education and training, end quote. The Department of Education suspended access to the system this week in order to carry out necessary checks to ensure data security. It's understood that the service was restored on Thursday this week. The Department for Education said the company had access to the records because they registered with a UK provider reference number on the UK Register of Learning Providers as an apprenticeship provider. When contacted, Trustopia declined to comment but did confirm that they were not a training provider. Previous investigations have shown that a company can gain a UK PRN within 24 hours simply by providing a limited company number. A Department of Education spokesperson would not say why Trustopia was given access to the database or what it used the service for, adding that a full internal investigation is underway. The Department for Education has notified the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, and the ICO has begun to make inquiries. A bit of background is that prior to co-founding Trustopia, Smith ran a training company called Edudo. It was investigated by the Department of Education in 2017. The Department of Education will not say why, but subsequently terminated the firm's contracts, which were used to deliver courses paid for by government loans. Smith then transferred Edudo's assets to a new company called Learning Republic, which went bust. Hundreds of learners were subsequently left with thousands of pounds of debt and no qualifications to show for it. Smith himself was declared as bankrupt in November 2019. For the National Union of Students, Juliana Mohammed Noor said the Department for Education has failed these young people by not performing the relevant due diligence and called for a full investigation to ensure no more harm is done to the youngsters involved. A Department for Education spokesperson said Trustopia broke their agreement with us. This was completely unacceptable and we have immediately stopped the firm's access and ended our agreement with them. We will be taking the strongest possible action. Since the ICO and the Department for Education are now both mounting investigations into this, we expect we will get an update from one organisation or the other, and as soon as we receive any such update, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The ICO has issued new guidance this week for age-appropriate design, and it's titled the guidance, A Code of Practice for Online Services. And it's really looked at from the point of view of young people and how the ICO and data protection can best be applied to those young people and point out that it doesn't necessarily be, have to be a young person accessing a website. It could be that they're opening an app or they're playing a game or even in today's Internet of Things that they're using a third-party device. And yet, it's important to guard who's using the service, how they're using it, how frequently, where from, and on what device, because that information may then inform techniques used to persuade young people to spend more time using those services to shape the content they're encouraged to engage with and to tailor the advertisements they see. For all the benefits that digital autonomy can offer children, we're not currently creating a safe space for them to learn, explore, and play. So the new guidance from the ICO, which in itself is a statutory code of practice, looks to change that, not by seeking to protect children from the digital world, but by protecting them within it. It's important to note that one in five UK internet users are children, but they're using the internet that was not designed for them. 
In research conducted by the ICO to inform the direction of the code, they heard children describing data practices as nosy, rude and a bit freaky. The ICO's recent national survey into people's biggest data protection concerns ranked children's privacy second only to cybersecurity. This has also been echoed in other surveys conducted by Ofcom and also by the London School of Economics. The code is the first of its kind, but it reflects the global direction of travel with similar reform being considered in the rest of Europe, in the USA and globally by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. The ICO hopes that this code will lead to changes that the UK Parliament wants. Parliament and Government have ensured that UK data protection laws will truly transform the way we look after children online by requiring that the ICO introduces this statutory code of practice. A key element of the code is that it's achievable. The code is not a new law, but it sets standards and explains how the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, applies in the context of children using digital services. The code follows a thorough consultation process that included speaking with parents, children, schools, children's campaign groups, developers, tech and gaming companies and online service providers. As such, the code has been shaped to be effective, proportionate and achievable. Organisations should conform to the code and demonstrate that their services use children's data fairly and in compliance with data protection law. The code itself is a set of 15 flexible standards They do not ban or specifically prescribe any actions, but rather look to provide built-in protection to allow children to explore, learn and play online by ensuring that the best interests of the child are the primary consideration when designing and developing online services. One key element is that settings must be high privacy by default, unless there's a really compelling reason not to. Only the minimum amount of data should be collected and retained. Children's data should not be usually shared. Geolocation services should be switched off by default. Nudge techniques should not be used to encourage children to provide unnecessary personal data, weaken or turn off their privacy settings, i.e. it should not be the case that a child has to provide further personal information to move to the next level of a game. The code also addresses issues of parental control and profiling. The ICO recognises that this is a new code and so is allowing the maximum transition period of 12 months to allow the industry to adopt the full features of the new code. For their part, the ICO said we want coders, user experience designers and system engineers to engage with these standards in their day-to-day to work and we're setting up a package of support for help. Elizabeth Stenham, CBE, the ICO, said... I believe companies will want to conform with the standards because they will want to demonstrate their commitment to always acting in the best interest of the child. What's more, they risk being left behind by those organisations that are keen to conform. A generation from now, I believe we will look back and find it peculiar that online services weren't always designed with children in mind. She went on to say, When my grandchildren are grown and have children of their own, the need to keep children safer online will be a second nature of the need to ensure they eat healthily, get rid education or buckle up the seatbelt in the back of the car. And while the code will never replace parental control and guidance, it will help people have greater confidence that their children can safely learn, explore and play online. There is no doubt that change is needed and it's hoped that this code from the ICO can be an important and significant part of that change and we certainly support that here and we will be working with companies who we work with 
who deal with children's data to help them implement this new code. And if you work in the children's space and you want some help with implementing the new code or understanding how it affects your product or service, then please do get in touch with us via podcast at insurety.co.uk, E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk, and one of our team of specialists will be delighted to help you and guide you through the process. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. In what some may see as a surprise move, the CEO of Doodle, Sundar Pinchery, has doubled down on his support for government privacy regulations when speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos in Switzerland this week. As lots of you probably know, the World Economic Forum is where all of the great and the good uh, gather to discuss what's going on in the world and to hear from various keynote speakers, of which the Judo CEO this week was one. Sundar went on to recognise that Google owes much of its success as the world's largest advertising programme to its extensive data collection practices, which allow for incredibly precise ad targeting based on information such as location, web activity, demographics and person's contact details. However, he recognised there had been a kickback against the intrusive data collection practices of digital giants like Google and Facebook, with these companies having to take into posture as becoming more privacy conscious, including introducing new tools to give users control over their data. The Google and Alphabet CEO promised to protect users' information, stating that privacy is, quotes, at the heart of what we do, quotes. He went on to say, users come to Google at very important moments, ask us questions, we deal with people's sensitive information in Gmail, Google photos and so on, and so we have to earn their trust. Today we do it by giving them control and transparency and choice around it. He went on to say that privacy cannot be considered to be a luxury good, and described GDPR as a great template which could provide guidance to other countries for considering privacy-focused data regulations. As I say, from our point of view, there's no, nothing particularly new there. We're aware of lots of countries around the world, as we've mentioned in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show, lots of countries around the world who are using GDPR as the base framework on which they're basing their own data protection regulations. Anyway, uh, he went on to argue that artificial intelligence tools could be more profound than fire or, electri- or electricity, with particularly transformative potential in healthcare such as through artificial intelligence tools for early detection of cancer and other conditions. He said that artificial intelligence could also play an important role in managing concerns about climate change and privacy, as it could allow companies such as Google to use AI-based decisions and make decisions based on less data. However, he did acknowledge that some applications of artificial intelligence, such as facial recognition, could also have enormously damaging potential such as its uses in mass surveillance. I am clear-eyed about the risk with technology, but the biggest risk with artificial intelligence may be failing to work on it and make more progress on it because it can impact billions of people, he said. You need a global framework to arrive at a safer world. His appearance at the Davos summit comes just days after he contributed an article to the Financial Times, laying out his largely supportive position on tech regulation particularly with regards to artificial intelligence. Now, I know some will be cynical over this statement from Google, 
but at least appears that they are starting to listen to what the world has to say about data privacy and maybe they have one eye there on the potential fines to be coming from the Irish ICO sometime later this year in respect of uh, data breaches by Google. But nonetheless, it's good to see that right at the top of Google there does seem to be a commitment to data privacy and we, amongst others, will be keeping a careful eye on them and we'll obviously report back to you on any future updates in upcoming episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. Job performance details of more than 900 employees of office space provider Regus have been published online by accident after a staff review. Sales staff at Regis had been recorded showing researchers posing as clients around office space available to rent. Information about the employees was later published on Trello, a task management website. And a spreadsheet with names, addresses and jobs performance data was found via Trello by the Telegraph newspaper. The names and addresses of hundreds of researchers contracted from a company called Applause by Regis parent company IWG were also included. IWG in a statement said that team members are aware that they are recorded for training purposes and each recording is shared with the individual team member and their coach to help them become even more successful in their roles. We are extremely concerned to learn that an external third party who implemented the exercise inadvertently published online the outcomes of an internal training and development exercise. As our primary concern, we took immediate action and the external provider has now removed the content. Michael Pryor, co-founder of Trello, said Trello boards are set to private by default and must be manually changed to public by the user. We strive to make sure that public boards are being created intentionally and have built in safeguards to confirm the intention of a user before they make a board publicly visible. The data breach has not been reported to the UK Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, as far as we've been able to establish, and readers have indicated that because the data breach took place via Trello, that it's been reported to Luxembourg, who are the relevant ICO for Trello. However, we've been unable to confirm with the Luxembourg ICO whether the breach has yet been reported to them, so that's something we will follow up in the coming week. An applause spokesman said, Since being made aware of the issue, we have reiterated our information security policies with our worldwide employees and have run an internal audit to confirm that there are no other unapproved third-party software tools being used in any client engagement. So we'll keep an eye on this one and if we have any future updates from Trello or from the Luxembourg ICO, we will of course bring them to you as soon as we get them. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Twitter has suspended dating app Grindr from its ad platform after what it said were repeated GDPR breaches. A study by Twitter of the activity of Grindr found that Grindr was allegedly passing significant amounts of private information to advertisers without explicit consent from its users. The study carried out by the Norwegian Consumer Council found that the online advertising industry was systematically breaking the law, transmitting personal data and tracking users in ways that are banned under GDPR. Of the 10 apps examined in depth by the Norwegian Consumer Council, 
which included period trackers and dating apps, Grinder stood out as being significantly problematic. The Norwegian Consumer Council said that Grinder had such a vague privacy policy that it was probably in breach of GDPR, particularly concerning how the company tried to excuse itself from misuse of its data by advertising partners. Grinder told users that they needed to check with partners to find out how their data was used, but only named one such partner, Mopub, an ad network owned by Twitter. Mopub, in turn, lists more than 160 partners to which data may be passed. By stating that it does not control these tracking technologies, and by asking users to read the privacy policy of any third-party companies that may receive personal data, Grindr is attempting to shift accountability for the advertising technologies it's using away from itself, the report concluded. Max Schrems, a well-known name to regular listeners of the GDPR Weekly Show, said, Every time you open an app like Grindr, advertisement networks get your GPS location, your device identifiers, and even the fact that you use a gay dating app. This is an insane violation of users' privacy rights within the EU. Following publication of the report, the Council filed formal complaints of GDPR breaches against Grindr and Mopeb, as well as four other ad tech firms. Twitter said it would investigate the allegations, saying Grindr provided data with inadequate consent and suspended the app from Mopub. We are currently investigating this issue to understand the sufficiency of Grindr's consent mechanism, Twitter said. In the meantime, we've disabled Grindr's account. For its part, the Norwegian Consumer Council said that every app they had accessed had some privacy problems, however, leading the report sources to conclude that the problem was endemic. Because of the scope of the test, the size of the third parties that observed receiving data and the popularity of their apps, we regard the findings in these tests to be representative of widespread practice, they said. The tests, which were all carried out on Android devices, showed that every single app shared data with third parties. Eight of the ten also shared data with Google, while nine of them shared data with Facebook. We urged data protection authorities to enforce the GDPR, the council concluded, and for advertisers and publishers to look towards alternative digital advertising methods that respect people's fundamental rights. Finn Mirstad, the Norwegian Consumer Council's Digital Policy Director, told the New York Times, which was the first media outlet to pick up on the study, that any consumer with an average number of apps on their phone, so let's say anywhere between 40 and 80 apps, will have their data shared with hundreds or maybe thousands of actors online. For their part, a Grindr spokesperson said user privacy and data security is and always will be a high priority for Grindr. Examples of this commitment include sharing our revised privacy policy in its entirety to every Grindr user in order to gain their consent and provide even greater transparency about Grindr's privacy for practices. In addition, Grindr is currently implementing an enhanced consent management platform with one trust to provide users with additional in-app control regarding their personal data. As always, Grindr users have individual control over exactly what information they choose to provide in their profiles. We have also further enhanced our information security policy as part of our ongoing commitment to safeguard our users' data. The spokesperson for Grindr went on to say, so while we reject the number of reports, assumptions and conclusions, we welcome the opportunity to be a small part in a larger conversation about how we can collectively evolve the practices of mobile publishers and continue to provide users with access to an option of a free platform. 
As the data protection landscape continues to change, our commitment to user privacy remains steadfast. Now, from our perspective, obviously this is disappointing, but we also think that Twitter has acted correctly in suspending Grindr's advertising for the moment, and we hope that Grindr can find a way around the solution, because without doubt thousands of people do use Grindr and find it a very enjoyable app to use. However, data privacy has to come first. I think one problem is is that it's all very well for Grindr to say, oh, we've enhanced our data protection policy and our privacy policy and we've made it stronger. But that probably means they've also made it longer. And we all know, I think, it's common human nature that particularly with an app on a mobile phone, you're not going to stand and or sit and read through pages and pages and pages of a policy. You're going to probably do what most people are like to do in that scenario, scroll up and up and up until you hit the accept button, click accept, and you haven't really read what you're accepting at all. And so we need to find a way around that impasse, I think, if data is going to stay secure as we move forward into an ever more connected world. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A new mobile app called Mine, M-I-N-E, has been launched this week and it claims to wrestle control of personal data away from corporations and back into the hands of individuals by taking advantage of the rights of individuals under GDPR. Mine says that it uses machine learning algorithms to analyse the contents of the user's inbox to work out the companies and services they've signed up to over the years that may hold financial or identity-related information about them. Once the users are given mine permission to access their inbox, they're presented with a list of the online services their email address has been used with and given the option to send a request to delete all held information about them by those services. Online retailers such as Boots, Amazon and eBay are listed under financial data holders, while pret Duolingo and IKEA appear under the services that collect identity data. Waterstones, The Train Line, Argus and John Lewis are among the businesses that collect online behavioural data, while dating apps and social media firms such as Reddit, Twitter, LinkedIn and Pinterest are among those that hold social data. Once a user has decided they no longer want to use the service and want that service to hold their data, Mine sends an automated email request for its removal on the user's behalf. Some companies may require further information or confirmation of your identity before a person's data is fully deleted, and the business has up to 30 days to comply with the request under GDPR. The founders of Mine, Dow Ringer, Dow Golan and Toby Nissan, created Mine in reaction to growing concerns about online data collection and privacy implications for the general public, who they thought had no simple way of taking advantage of the right to be forgotten clause enforced by GDPR ruling. GDPR dictates that individuals have the right to request businesses and if services erase their personal data, if verbally requested to do so or in writing. Mine claims never to read, collect or store elements of a user's email address, adding that it uses a bare minimum of information required to provide its service. We totally appreciate the ease, convenience and benefit of being online, but we firmly believe your personal data is yours to own and yours to give, the company said in a statement. Your data is personal, it's not just statistics, it's your identity, and could potentially be used against you. We help people take ownership of their data, make their own choices and take back what's theirs. 
For more information on mine, go to saymineapp.com. That's S-A-Y-M-I-N-E-A-P-P.com. Saymineapp.com. It's worth investigating this app and to see what it can do, but one thing or one note of caution we would give is that GDPR gives you the right to request to be forgotten. It doesn't necessarily mean that the company you're requesting from has to forget you. If they can write back to you with a perfectly valid reason under GDPR of why they need to retain your data, then they can continue to retain it. So it's not perhaps quite as simple as the app portrays it to be, but nonetheless, I think the app potentially could provide a useful service. So, as I say, if you want to check it out, go and have a look at samemineapp.com and we would just point out that we received no financial incentive for this article from mine. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. One of the unintended consequences of GDPR came to light this week when it was revealed that the Met Police had banned stop-and-search monitoring groups from viewing body-worn video footage because of concerns over GDPR. Traditionally, stop-and-search community monitoring groups, CMGs, which are backed by the Mayor's Office for Policing and Crime, would visit police stations once a month to see footage from the body-worn cameras to ensure that good practice was being followed. But Scotland Yard decided to discontinue these sessions at the end of October 2019, citing legal responsibilities to safeguard people's rights under the Data Protection Act 2018 and the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. On Monday, Commander Jane Connors, the Met's lead for Stop and Search, chaired a meeting with a number of CMG chairs to discuss the way forward. Between the French, Chief Executive of Charity Stopwatch, which previously chaired Islington's monitoring group, said it means scrutiny panels don't have the tools to ensure or instill confidence in the police because they can't see what they're doing. Anyone can write anything on paper, but no one's going to say, I stopped him because he's black. But being able to see the body-worn video camera meant there was transparency about what had happened in each incident. CMGs claim that the Met's decision is disproportionate and says alternative practices such as redacting the data from videos instead or blurring people's faces had not been properly considered. For its part, the Met has said that they had looked into these technologies and it was simply too expensive. It's worth bearing in mind that if you look at blunt figures of numbers of stops and searches in, let's say, Islington, for example, then the number of stops and searches is the same for white people and black people. So you'd say, well, then there can't be any discrimination there until you realise that the black population only makes up 12% of Islington's population, whereas the white population is about 74%, the rest being Asian. Um, But it just goes to show, therefore, that it is a disproportionate, or would appear to be, disproportionate stopping of black people as opposed to white European people for stop and search by the Metropolitan Police, certainly within Islington. But the argument put forward by the CMGs is that they can't now really verify that because they're not able to see the footage from the body-worn cameras. 
my personal view is that I think this is a law of unintended consequences. I don't think this was what was meant to happen when GDPR was brought in. And I think there probably are ways to argue legally around it in view of performing a lawful duty that the data could actually be shared with the CMGs. And I would hope that the Metropolitan Police will take another look at this and revisit this decision. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.